On today's show, we have Amrit from Zillica. We're going to discuss details about the project, investors, team, and token, along with any plans on the roadmap. Amrit, thanks for coming out today. Why don't you start by giving us some background about yourself prior to Zillica? Thanks. Thanks very much for inviting me over. Um, my background is in scientific research. So before I started and before I joined Zillica, I was doing research in security and privacy. So I did my PhD in France. And then I was basically, I was looking into um, what happens when you install a certain software on your machine, on your system. What sort of privacy and security implications they have? So for example, let's say if, you're in, if you install an antivirus software, that software may be scanning your files that you have on your system, right? So it could be scanning your document files, could be scanning your images. And some information related to that file, those files could be sent to the backend servers, so the antivirus company. So the idea was to understand how, what sort of implications uh, are involved when you're using some of those uh, so security software. Around that time, you know, blockchains were becoming popular for, you know, among academics. So uh, until then, it was mostly around traders and people who were developers who were actively you know, working on Bitcoin. But around, let's say, in 2016, early 2017, people were really excited about researchers were getting excited about what are the academic and research problems in, in, in Bitcoin and blockchains. So this was when, you know, my interests uh, grew as well. And I decided to sort of uh, do a postdoc in, in blockchain. So I moved over to Singapore. And this is where I started to work on the privacy aspects of blockchains. So I started to look into, and back then, you know, Dash was there. Monero had just come out and Zcash was, you know, in the early stages. So um, I was looking into Monero. So my first first venture into blockchains was through Monero. So I read the Monero's white papers first before jumping into Bitcoin's white paper. And so the idea was to understand uh, whether Monero actually gives you the privacy that it, that it you know, advertises. So we wrote a paper with some of my colleagues, uh, which basically showed that around 95 or 98% of transactions that ever happened on Monero since the birth of Monero until early 2018 were not private at all. So it was, it was kind of a very interesting uh, sort of observation that we had. And then after that, you know, my, my advisor, who was a um, you know, professor at uh, the National University of Singapore, which is where I was employed back then, he said, look, uh, we are working on scalability problems uh, in the blockchain space, trying to find a way in which we could scale Bitcoin and Ethereum. If you have an idea, would you like to work with us to commercialize this in some way? And that project later became Zilliqa, and that's how I got involved. So it was your, I guess, uh, your interest in these applications or what's running in the background for privacy matters that led you to kind of look at Monero and then led you to Zilliqa. Right. And I guess why we hit on that topic is, you know, any advice or tips for those, you know, obviously in the space that uh, probably download certain applications all to their computer right now, is there anything they should be looking for in the background that, you know, helps protect their crypto and keys or, you know, anything from a security standpoint that they could be doing? Definitely. First thing is don't always say yes to everything. That's the most obvious thing to do because, uh, you know, when you don't read it, that's when you actually say everything, you know, say yes to everything, which is, which is obviously, um, which is obviously very critical. The second thing is, um, you know, when you get a certain service for free, you know, there are certain things that you give out. You know, for example, when you use a browser, sometimes there are certain services that are tracking things on your browser. For example, when you use Google Chrome, for example, or, or even Firefox to some extent, um, what happens is they have um, what they call a safe browsing mechanism, which basically when you type in or visit a certain website, the safe browsing module, which is integrated in the browser, basically checks whether that website is phishing, is a phishing website or a malware website or not. And it's done so behind the scenes that you won't even notice it until you actually visit a visit an actual phishing website. And what ends up happening behind the scenes is actually they track whether um, that's, I mean, they basically check that website URL against a certain database that they have maintained. So in a way, they know the website that you're visiting. The browser knows in a way, in a way uh, the website you're visiting. So one, be very careful of what you, I mean, for the normal users, be very careful when you, when you say yes to everything. And number two is don't download things that seem to be offering you a lot of things, but 
you know, for free. So be very careful with that. All right. And then you also mentioned, you know, doing your research on Monero and uh, most of the transactions up to 2018 uh, not being private. Can you kind of comment in details a little bit about that? Why? And then also, I think, you know, obviously, I think some of the US government has kind of been looking into Monero lately. And, you know, what is your opinion there? Are they, you know, is it private or not? So, uh, okay. So, when, um, so for the, for the listeners who are not familiar with Monero's privacy features, so basically it provides you two types of privacy or two features in terms of privacy. One is, let's say, when I send a transaction to, to you, I want to make sure that anyone looking at the blockchain should not be able to know that it was me who sent. And by me, I mean not my identity, but even my pseudonymy, you know, pseudonymous identity, for example. So basically, when you look at Monero's blockchain, what you'd see as a regular transaction is this one guy among 10 guys who is sending money to some guy whose address is 0x1b. So you won't be able to pinpoint. It's like, it's like an anonymity set. So you know that someone is saying something or someone is transferring money, but that someone is one among 10 or 15 people. Okay, so it's never one-to-one. So for example, when you send a Bitcoin transaction, you go to the Explorer and what you'd see is a transaction coming from one address going to another address. This is not what happens in Monero. So Monero, you will see a list of addresses and then you as a sender and one recipient. So this would when you are looking at the blockchain, you would not know who is the real sender and who is the, which address is the real sender. What we were able to show that in 95, 98% of cases, you can actually identify, even though there are many senders, you can actually identify which is the real sender. And it's, it's um, simply put, the way it works is, um, imagine, for example, you have a group of employees in a company and someone does a leak, okay? So from an outside perspective, you know that someone leaked that, I don't know, CEO is, CEO is doing some shady stuff, let's say. But it's very hard for the outsider to know who the real person was, okay? Because he may could go to the journal, you know, a newspaper and could say, okay, uh, you can hide my identity and I will let you, you know, I'll give you this piece of information about the CEO. Now imagine if everyone else in the company was honest and loyal to the CEO, like, blindly loyal. They could go to the newspaper and could say, look, I wasn't the person and I can bet my life on it. This way, you know, in a way, you know that if 99 out of 100 people didn't do it, then this guy, the last one is the one who did it. So in, in, in Monero, the way you can sort of this work, this, this whole idea of sort of works is imagine, for example, you have this 10 people in a group and you're pretending that I am one of those 10 people and I'm sending this transaction. What happens is when this guy since one of the 10 guys sends another transaction, you would know that this guy didn't do the transaction, okay? Because otherwise it would be a double spend. What ends up happening is everyone comes out and says, oh, I didn't do it because here's my transaction. And then the other guy comes out and says, okay, I didn't do it. This is my transaction. So nine out of 10 people say that, look, I didn't do that transaction because I have my money here. This way you are basically revealing uh, the, the last person who wanted to hide himself. You're isolating that one transaction. Exactly. exactly. So again, there's slightly more complex ideas involved, but essentially this is the, this is the main gist of it where Nine people say, look, I didn't do it. And they can prove to you that they didn't do it. And therefore, the last person is basically at the odd man out. I mean, do you think it's possible that, you know, someone's going to come up with something for total privacy transactions? Is it even possible with a digital it trace? It's possible. Yeah. I, mean, look, I mean, of course, Monero, since I have not looked at Monero for a while now, but I'm sure that Monero has fixed some of the issues that we had highlighted back then. Um, the other thing that they've added is uh, this idea of you can even hide the amount. So previously, the amount was not hidden. So when you send a transaction from one user to the other, your amount was always public. So in a way, you would know that he's the richest guy on the planet because he's sending a transaction of, I don't know, $100 million on a Monero transaction. But now they're even hidden that. So now you wouldn't even know what's the amount being transacted. So I, I do feel that, yes, it is possible. But yeah, you know, many of the privacy that exists, at least in the blockchain space, is kind of based on anonymity set, which is hiding among a group of people. And this notion of privacy where you hide among a group of people is not the strongest notion of privacy out there. And that's why it may, there are attack vectors that can happen. The second point is most of the attacks that have happened on Monero, these are 
sort of passive attacks in the sense that when you look at so the all the adversary, adversary can only look at the blockchain and try to understand and analyze what's happening. The adversary doesn't actually go and sort of tinker with the blockchain, so doesn't actively send transactions. So yes, when people actively start sending malicious transactions to the blockchain in order to sort of de-anonymize certain users, then things could be a little bit more different. But I do feel very strongly that a private blockchain can exist. But I do agree that you know right now we are not. I mean, even in the regular space, you know, go outside of blockchain, people don't understand privacy very you know, very well. They are very open to sharing their data privately. They say, I don't care. Um, and and that that mentality hopefully will change over time. And then I think people will start taking you know privacy very seriously. But I do feel that technology is ready and there to provide the solution that people are looking for. All right. Well, let's go into the at the highest level. You know, what is Zilliqa and kind of why was it formed? Right. So as as I said earlier, so Zilliqa when we started. Um, the idea we were looking at uh, crypto kitties happening. Uh, we had seen some of the initial hiccups that uh, Ethereum had in terms of scalability. So every time there was an ICO, uh, a lot of people were transacting and trying to send money and buy those tokens. And you know, within a matter of minutes or seconds, the blockchain was almost uh, to a halt in that sense. So no one could send any transaction unless you paid paid out a thousand dollars worth of fees. So. Um, we had similar issues with Bitcoin as well. Uh, if you send a transaction, it takes around an hour or probably sometimes even more uh, to get your transaction through. So the idea was to be able to build a blockchain that could scale, that could process transactions, uh, you know, in a volume, in some you know, decent volume. And therefore, uh, we were looking at an idea that was called sharding, which is an idea that now many blockchains are not pursuing, but we are the first one to actually put that into action. But the basic idea is um, when you look around, um, especially around Bitcoin, when you send a transaction to to the Bitcoin network, the way it essentially works is you send a transaction and it, it, this transaction basically says that, okay, I want to send $100 from this address to another address. And here's the transaction, I've signed it and you send it to the network. The network then checks, which could be, this network could be 10,000 big, for example, and it checks whether the transaction is valid, the signature is valid, and I have you know, funds to be able to transfer that or that money. And then it, it basically agrees that, okay, this transaction is valid and let's, let's agree to, the, to insert that in the blockchain. Now, it's very decent in the sense that even if one of the 10,000 nodes goes down, the network will still work. But it's also very redundant. Uh, imagine, for example, uh, having a network, uh, having to send a transaction worth $1 and you have 10,000 nodes trying to validate that transaction. It's very redundant. And that's kind of why it, it, blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum don't scale. And therefore, the idea was to be able to build a network which basically is kind of a, you know, a collection of sub-networks. So instead of having one big network of 10,000 nodes, you could divide them into smaller groups so let's say 10 groups, each containing 1,000 nodes. So that each subgroup that we call shard will process transaction parallel to other shards. So the more shards you have, the more transactions you can process. So that was the idea of sharding that we started and then we implemented that. Uh, and that's, that's what Zilliqa is all about. The second uh, problem that we sort of were interested in was smart contract safety. So we had seen, for example, DAO hack happen where uh, I don't know, $100 million worth of assets were sort of in a way, stolen from that contract. And then you had a fork in Ethereum, and then you had Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. Um, very soon after that, we saw a parity incident happen where uh, someone was able to hack a contract and was able to lock, lock, I mean, was able to freeze basically around a couple of hundred million dollars worth of Ether in that contract to a point where you could actually see that there's money in the contract, but you can't take that out. So it's like a frozen, frozen money there. And every other day you see today, even in the DeFi space, uh, every other day uh, you see hacks happening. Uh, very recently, for example, Fortune had a few, quite a few hacks. Um, so the idea we were seeing that happen and we felt that maybe you can't just wait until people realize that um, there are certain ways to write contracts to make things safer. So we felt that maybe it would be a good idea to build a smart contract language that be safe for people to write a code in and safe for people to use. 
So our idea is to be able to develop this language that we call Scylla, uh, which is a smart contract language for which comes with safety in mind, which one guarantees that um, certain hacks that we know and that exist in the world, in the Ethereum and Solidity space will not happen. And number two is that it gives you possibility, it allows you to give mathematical guarantees about the correctness and safety of contracts. For example, if you have a contract, you could say, look, I want this guarantee that my contract is not going to leak funds to any other user or any other contract. And you can have that property proven in a mathematical form that's valid. So these are kind of two properties, scalability and smart contract safety that uh, Zilliqa tries to establish and build. So when it comes to the sharding, is, is there any, I guess, kind of minimum amount of that uh, smaller sub network that needs to validate those transactions to you know, make sure that stays decentralized? Exactly, it does. So imagine, for example, if I have if I had a total node of node count of let's say 10, okay? Yeah. And if if I create a shard of one node, it's not decentralized because it's very easy to go and kick that node down and then this entire network basically becomes dysfunctional. So yes, it's important to have your shard size, which is large enough. Now what's large enough is something that comes from probability. So you want to make sure that if, you're, if you have certain assumptions on your network, so for example, if you say that my network of my initial network of let's say 10,000 nodes has at most one third of nodes, which are malicious, which can be malicious. Under that assumption, you want to guarantee the same assumption at the shard level as well with high probability. Okay, so what we you know we did some mathematics and what came out to be that if you are around if you have something around five hundred to six hundred nodes in each shard, then the probability that um, uh, you have the same security at the shard level compared to the network level is very very high. So that's why in each in Zilliqa, each each smaller shard has six hundred nodes at minimum, which is by the way it's larger than many networks out there. I mean Bitcoin Ethereum obviously has much larger network size, but uh, if you look at any the newer chains that have come up, um, the network size that you usually have is something between 50 to 200 maximum. They're pretty centralized still. I mean, summary, yes. <laughs> right. Summary. So when it comes to, I guess, you know, you no, know, I guess transactions per second, right? Because I mean, basically what you're doing is you have less nodes validating the transactions, right? Which will increase the time, correct? Or yes. decrease, decrease the time. The time. Uh, so, you know, Kind of, can you break down what is the difference in time of doing the sharding versus not? Yeah. So, for example, let's say, very simply put, imagine if you had, um, let's say, this 10,000 nodes, right? You send 10 transactions to it. Everyone is going to process that transaction. It's going to take you the same time. So, essentially, it's the slowest machine is going to basically give you, give you the, 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 the basic time here. If you have two shards, if both can process in parallel, you're basically getting the smallest across the two shards now. Right, but yet still you can do process uh, transaction parallel. So, for example, let's say if I have my transaction, if I have two shards in the network, and if I have my transactions that um, that gets handled in shard number one, if all your transactions will go to shard number two, so these two transactions can always be handled in parallel. While in the traditional Bitcoin kind of world, those trans transactions will always get handled in one shard. So, therefore, you are creating more latency in that way. So, in terms of throughput, uh, we observed that when we were running testnet, we observed that we could easily handle around two thousand uh, transactions per second. Um, on the on the on the Zilliqa testnet, while just to give you a sense of how much transactions Bitcoin Ethereum process, they plus around something between ten to twenty transactions per second. Now, do you think? I, I mean, it's kind of I think, in my opinion, we haven't seen yet. But from a centralized to decentralized thesis, I mean, do you think we're going to be able to get to a point to handle enough transactions per second on a blockchain needed, and also uh, obtain the decentralization that the community would like? Look, there are obviously chains out there which are claiming I don't know millions of transactions per second. But honestly, from my perspective. Unless you have a centralized architecture, you can't you can't achieve that. The technology today is not mature enough to be able to handle millions and billions of transactions per second. I do believe that, and to be honest with you, we are not quite there yet in, in demand-wise as well. You know, look at look at Ethereum. I mean, you could argue that probably because um, 
you know, the fees are high and all that. And that's why you don't see the, those mutual transactions. But the reality is today, and by the way, for, for your listeners, uh, Ethereum roughly receives around a million to two million transactions per day, a day. It's not, if you break it down to, uh, you know, per second, it's around, I don't know, 15, 20 transactions per second. If you, um, I think even if you combine all the top 10, 15 blockchains out there, you're not going to go beyond, I don't know, 15 million transactions per day. I don't think you're going to be on that. Unless you you exclude some transactions, some chains which allow you to spam in, in free way. But otherwise, now if you look at the user numbers as well, right? There are around 400 uh, million Ethereum addresses that hold Ether. If you look at the daily active users who are actually using DeFi on a daily basis, around 2 million. And again, these are not users. I mean, it's hard to know users because you have anonymous addresses. Let's put it that, but let's be a little bit more generous here. And you could say, okay, these are all 2 million different users. It already shows to you that the number of people actually engaged with blockchains today is actually quite low. So it's less than 1% of total address that exists in the blockchain space. So I don't think that we have the demand today to drive, let's say, uh, 5,000, even probably even more than that. I don't think you can hit that. Today, I think if you probably, you, if you have around, let's say, the, the demand that I'm seeing is around 20 to 50 transactions per second is something that you can have demand. Um, so as long as your capacity is slightly higher than that, let's say 5x, 10x than that, you're probably fine for now. Of course, you could say, okay, I want to build a Facebook-like application where every like goes on a blockchain. Sure. <laughs> uh, I don't think I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, so, so I do feel that uh, focus right now should really be on converting the token holders into users because a lot of people in the space today are mostly speculating. And if you continue to have that sort of mentality uh, that, okay, blockchains are here because there's a token and, and because there's a token, I can speculate and make money. I don't think this space is going to go that far. So we need to sort of build applications that really attracts users towards those platforms. And that's, I think, something that we should be more careful of rather than, you know, touting or, or trying to, you know, make, uh, I don't know, a blockchain that does a billion transactions per second. It's, it's, I don't think it's realistic. As you mentioned token, you know, you guys have a, a, the Zillica token and kind of what was, you know, the reason for uh, launching that Zillica token? Well, so it's it's uh, the blockchain platform needs a way to prevent spam, needs a way to have, needs to have a base currency to be able to sort of do it, gas accounting, for example, right? Because otherwise, if you if you do it completely for free, if there's no token involved, then anyone could spam this uh, public infrastructure, and then uh, you know could could create issues for the network. And mind you, you know these miners have to be paid as well. You know, there's someone has to maintain that infrastructure, and they have to be paid in some way. So Zilliqa token is just like Ethereum in that sense. So it allows people to pay for the transaction fees. It gives miners an incentive to run the network. It also allows people to build applications on top. For example, you could imagine. You know, we have a staking mechanism where you could take your zills and you could put that into, into a staking contract and on returns of that. And that staking, you know, staked zills actually gives you certain guarantees around the safety of the, of the, of the network. So it gives you guarantee that your network will process, you know, will provide a certain service. You could also use uh, zills in many uh, different things like uh, DEXs. So we have a DEX called ZillSwap where you can put your zill and other token, you know, ERC20 Lite token, and you can trade those, um, trade those tokens with zill being the base token. Yeah, building uh, someone from the community is building a MakerDAO like like platform where uh, Zill will again be the base asset like Ethereum in, in MakerDAO. So these are things that you can do with do with Zill today, which is very similar to what you can do in uh, with Ethereum. With I guess you know uh, multiple dexes and everything coming online. What, how, how do projects attract users but also retain users over the long term? Yeah, you know I was quite surprised uh, when we launched our dex, uh, which is ZillSwap. I was quite surprised to see the number of people who were in the Zillica community who had never used Uniswap before. And what I mean by never used Uniswap, I don't mean to say people providing liquidity Uniswap. I'm, I'm talking about people who are wanting to swap their tokens. 
So even there are many people today who don't use some of these DEXs on Ethereum simply because they feel it's too complicated. They're not initiated in that, that space yet. So I was quite surprised. And in fact, I, when I looked at the real numbers, tangible numbers, the number of people who actually use Curve, which is, as you know, um, the, the exchange that supports um, exchange of same like assets, like, like stable coins, for example, the number of users actually using that on a, on a 90 day basis, I think is around uh, 7,000. So on a, on a three months period, around 7,000 unique addresses you know, interact with Curve. While this number of people, number of unique addresses that interact with ZillSwap on a, on a 90 day basis around 30,000. So it's, it's like 4X number of people actually interact with ZillSwap compared to, compared to Curve, which gives you a sense that even though Zillica is a much smaller community than, than Ethereum, it's much more active. You could also argue that maybe on, on Curve and, and Uniswap and some of the darlings of Ethereum, there are users who are very tech savvy, who are very finance savvy in some sense. But it feels to me that there is a large community that is, that is, that is composed of regular users, it's composed of average users. They still don't feel comfortable. They still have to watch a one-hour video to be able to understand how, this, how, how Uniswap works. And that's the challenge that we have to fix. Because I feel that, yes, we can keep on building new stuff. We can keep on experimenting. But what ends up happening is we are basically building you know, applications for developers and not for and, you know, average users. And that has to change. And I think if we, can, if we can build, and that's kind of why NFTs in some way are much easier to understand for people, right? It's, 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 it's much simpler than uh, trying to explain uh, a MakerDAO or, or trying to explain... Let's say even even impermanent loss to someone, right? It's much easier. So that's that's an angle that I think we are targeting. Number one is you have to educate your community in the right way, and you should not feel as if okay, I'm only targeting developers or I'm only targeting um, DeFi users are only developers. That's the wrong approach. So we need to target and educate, um, you know, reg regular average users. Number two, we have to build applications that doesn't in introduce new lingos and jargons every time. So you you know you have to stop inventing that. You know there are many ways of you know today. You go and ask an average user on, you know, in the street and you say, do you know what simple interest is? Do you know interest rate? He would say, yes, I understand what an interest rate means. Ask him, to, to ask him whether he knows what an APY means. He would say, no, I don't understand what APY means. But I fail to understand that why people in the blockchain space keep inventing new terms. And we need to, we need to, we need to sort of tone it down. It's not that, you know, look, I, I can understand it, but no average user doesn't understand it. And if you're asking, when I download an app from app, app Store, let's say an average mortgage app or banking app, I don't have to watch a video from HSBC or, or mm -hmm. you know, um, <laughs> these banks to know how to use it. But when I download an app today from a blockchain app or a DAP, I am forced to, forced to watch a one-hour video. If my influencer doesn't teach me how to use it, I won't use it. And that needs to change. And if, if you can't, and that's, that's what I'm saying, this is how we, I think, we can, one, attract users who are involved in the blockchain space. By involved, I mean, who already hold assets but they're not using any of the dApps. And then number two, we can also bring people from outside the space by giving them that, look, here is an application that allows you to get a mortgage without having to prove your social and you know, credits. And, and you can easily take that money, use it for whatever you want, and then return it back. And you could do that through, through these applications. But yes, we have to make that simpler to use. Right now, I can't convince my, my, my brother or my sister to use some of these apps. They, they just won't get it. From those users using ZillSwap, I mean, you mentioned maybe depending on if they're a power user or not. I mean, are you seeing anything from like also a jurisdiction standpoint, like whether on what part of the world there's more users on the Silicon network? I, I don't have that information, fortunately, because it's, you know, as you know, it's, it's difficult to get, uh, get that information. But I, I saw some information on, on Ethereum DAS, which I, I guess is uh, probably will apply to Zilliqa as well. What I saw was there was a study on uh, DeFi users, so people who use all the DeFi products, and they wanted to understand where these users come from. Are these people coming from Western uh, you know, markets or these people also come from emerging markets? Remember when DeFi was pitched out and people were talking about it, the main idea was, that, okay, here is 
a suite of applications that you can use using just your mobile because you know you need nothing else. You don't need your passport. You don't need anything else. Just your mobile phone and maybe some meter or. <laughs> like But if you look at the actual numbers, around four percent of users of DeFi actually come from emerging markets, which is. Again, you could argue that maybe because uh, U.S. and Europe are the richest countries, uh, you, know, com- you know, composed of richest countries there, and therefore there's a lot of capital there that goes into DeFi. But it also means that we are not give- building DeFi for the right crowd, which actually needs it the most. Imagine today you are sitting in Indonesia; it's very hard for you to get to go to a bank and get a thousand dollars loan because one thousand dollar may be too low for 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 you know, U.S. or Europe. But it's it's a substantial amount of money for someone sitting in Bangladesh or India or or Indonesia, and and no bank would give that loan because it's it's you know they don't have the paperwork and they they will have to do a ton of paperwork to get that done. So this idea of you know building an application system that is you know alternative to traditional finance that gives access to anyone, whether you are from Nigeria, India, Kenya, Bangladesh, it would it should have worked, but sadly it hasn't, and the that penetration has been really really bad, and we have to think really hard on why. We have failed to bring and convert users from those countries into 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 DeFi users. That has changed a little bit, and you can see that happening. That has changed a little bit, especially in the gaming space right now. You talk about, you know, Axie Infinity, for example. It has clearly shown to you that if you build the right product for the right user base, you will get them to use. And now, for example, people in Philippines, in Vietnam, in in, in those countries are actually using, you know, Axie Infinity or gaming, you know, play to earn kind of kind of gaps. To get involved in the blockchain space, and that's what I mean by a, a regular application. You need to bring average user into the game, and that's that's that that's kind of kind of kind of happening with some of the gaming applications, which hasn't quite happened with DeFi. Do you think, uh, at least from my experience, is that most of the stuff we use on uh, desktop applications, right, and some of the emerging markets might only have a mobile phone, right? Do you think that's a big gap there, right? You know, in the user experience, that they really can't go through that DeFi experience on their portable mobile device, like you know some of these other markets where they have desktops and three monitors. They <laughs> yeah, are, they are certain. I would agree with you that you know the mobile experience for DeFi is not that great. Let's be honest about it. There are a few attempts, for example, Argent Wallet and Ethereum. There are some attempts around that which has tried to improve the mobile experience. But I also feel that yes, there's a challenge in some of those markets because uh, in those markets, it's very difficult even to open a bank account. You have your bank, which is I don't know, hundred miles away, and you to go to open a bank account hundred miles away, it's, it's very challenging. So what ends up happening in countries like Indonesia is you have agents which sit between your bank and you as a as a customer, and they handle funds on your behalf in some way. So you know, jumping from from a non-existing financial system. Uh, to a DeFi is still a huge, a big leapfrog. So that's obviously one challenge. So we, that's kind of why we, I feel that a product that works in the Western world may not work in these countries. You know, you can't just copy paste. It has to come. It has to be built differently uh, because you have to understand the the challenges that these people face, the problems that these countries have, and then you can build a pro- product that will have the right market fit. You know, you know, mobile applications certainly you know one big plus that you need to build that because otherwise it's it's very difficult. Number two is. In some cases, we also have to consider the fact that there is um, this this the capital requirement sometimes is quite high, right? For example, in many of the DeFi cases, you could say, okay, if I want to borrow a hundred dollars worth of worth of loan, is it worth it? Mm-hmm. Is it worth taking all that risk? Is it worth taking all that all in this implement loss and and you know all that risk that comes with it? Maybe not. And that's kind of why when you see some of these DeFi applications, you would notice that a lot of these applications are actually being run by managed by whales in some way because Then you could take that risk, you know. Um, but a hundred dollars, maybe, maybe it's not worth it. But I guess what comes to my mind is that I guess a lot of uh, services or software is always kind of built 
to adapt, uh, you know, a certain user base. And then as it gets more efficient, it can manage a lot more users, right? And so I guess at that point is when, you know, it becomes an efficient market that a lot more of those emerging uh, customers can come on board because that cost will come way down, right? Look, for example, this is kind of what capital efficiency is all about right now in the DeFi space, right? Yep. You look at, for example, MakerDAO or some of the other assets where you have other applications where you have a collateral, right? When you put a collateral, they ask you to pay, I don't know, 2x, sometimes even 5x the collateral. So let's say if, you're, if you want to borrow $1, you have to put $5 as collateral. That's something that most people won't, it won't make sense to most people. They could say, come on, if I only have $5, I would, <laughs> I would take another dollar as, as loan. It, it won't make sense to many people. Uh, and that's kind of why in the traditional space, uh, let's say when you buy a, an apartment, when you're applying for a mortgage for an apartment, the risk that you're basically taking is your apartment itself, right? That's your collateral in some way. So if you don't pay up, the bank will come and take you into you know, the whole apartment and, and you know, sell it off or auction it off and take the money back. In the crypto space, because there are certain risks that you have to deal with because there's no KYC, because there's no credit scoring, the only thing that they can, they can deal with or they can take in is making sure that your collateral is high enough so that you can't run away. And even if you run away, you will have the collateral to sort of take that money out. But that may not make sense in certain, you know, certain systems. So that's why, you know, as you mentioned, you know, you know, capital efficiency will be very important. And many teams right now are working on making sure that you could build applications where this collateral requirement can be low enough for you to enter. In some cases, you know, they are building, for example, systems where you have, uh, you could pay off the loan, but it's what they call the self-paying loan. You take a loan, but then, for example, you are staking your asset, and if you are staking your assets, the system knows that you are getting some returns, let's say ten percent returns then you can borrow certain a certain number of assets against that staking because the system knows that you're getting 10% return. So it kind of pays, the, the, the loan rate gets paid by the interest rate you know, that comes from staking. So there are certain mechanisms that are being built where uh, you won't have to put a high collateral on top. But yes, you know, capital efficiency is something that the DeFi has to work on for sure. So on these you know, topics that we've just covered, you know, what is Zillica itself kind of you know, working on in its roadmap to help bring on more users and implement these things. So, you know, we have, uh, for example, uh, launched ZillSwap, which allowed us to create, uh, which allowed the community to launch all sorts of assets now. We are building a bridge. Of, again, there are a lot of bridges out there, but we are building a bridge that is very, very easy to use. Uh, I have used many, many bridges out there. This is, this is a bridge that connects Zillica and Ethereum. So it will allow people to bring assets from Ethereum to Zillica, and then uh, you could use those assets as if it was on Zillica purely. And you could use them at a cheaper rate. So you could send those assets across, you could trade those assets across and pay very tiny fees. So we are, we are, we are keeping this user focus in mind in some way and trying to build one user experience and number two application that makes it easier for people to use. And so, uh, you know, we have recently uh, you know, built this bridge. It's going to go live uh, probably in a couple of weeks time. And I, I feel that, you know, it's one of the best uh, user experience that I've felt, uh, you know, having used some of the other bridges out there. That will hopefully bring some users uh, who are, for example, holding Ether and other assets like BTC, they could bring those assets onto Zillica and then use them into different DeFi products that we have. One, because I know that we have a users. We have, let's, for example, we have 3x, 4x more users than, let's say, for example, Curve. We want them to be able to use the other assets that already hold on Ethereum and then be able to put that on the different DeFi products that we have. Uh, one of our committee members is building a MakerDAO-like version for Zillica. Again, the goal would be to be able to make it easier for people to understand that uh, it's not just a stable coin, but it's also a tool to, for you to le take a leverage, right? Because most people think that, oh, MakerDAO is a stable coin. I can go and buy DAI and then have a stable coin. I can do it, use it as a stable coin. But people forget the fact that someone is minting that DAI. And that guy who's minting that DAI is actually taking a leverage position, right? Because what you're basically doing is you're taking your Ether, assuming that, let's say, DAI is a single collateral sort of system. You're taking your Ether, you're putting that into, into, into MakerDAO-like system, and you're minting DAI. And then what you're doing is you're taking that die, you're selling that off for ether, and then putting that back. So in a way, you're long ether to be able to mint die. 
So those people in the Zilliqa ecosystem who are, let's say, long zero, they'll be able to do the same thing. But yeah, that education needs to go there. That's not just stablecoin system, but it's also a system that allows you to take leverage. Uh, so that's mostly on the DeFi side. Some people in the, in the community are also building sort of synthetic products, but again, it has to be something that people understand and use. You mentioned the bridge and the kind of, you know, a lower fees. You know, what are the current expectations of, the, what are the difference in fees on doing swaps on Zilliqa versus ETH? And- depending, yeah, depending on the day, <laughs> depending on the day uh, you lagged up it, but uh, you, it, the, the fees on Ethereum can vary something between, let's say, $5 to up to $100 uh, if the network is not congested. On Zilliqa, if you send transactions today, if you're swapping, uh, let's say, an asset, uh, it would cost you something between, let's say, 50 cents or something around that, not more than that. Uh, and I'm, when I mean 50 cents, it's 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 a very high duty transaction. So it's if I'm just sending you results, it's it's less than a penny, even even, even nothing. So, but if you're if you're doing a heavy duty transaction, it will cost you something between five to ten cents uh, around that mark. So that that gives you an edge over uh, in terms of fees. But I don't think fees is the biggest factor, to be honest. I think the fact is, do we have a user base that is interested in making their assets? Because there are so many users who hold USDT, for example, but they are so afraid of putting that USDT into Compound, putting that USDT into Aave, or putting that USDT in other DeFi protocols that are out there. And that's kind of why most of the users who are using some of these products are very tech savvy or financial savvy users. But I feel that in Zelic Company, we have users who want to use these applications if you give them the right tools, if you give them the right user experience. And I think that that's something that we are really targeting. And then you also, I think you mentioned uh, a loan a loan for lending. Zillow Swap lending, yeah. correct? Can so you we are building, of... a, I mean, someone in the team, in the community is building a lending uh, system, especially on stable coins, because you see, even, even in the general you know, blockchain space, uh, lending is there for you know, Ethereum and Bitcoin and even for you know, other assets, the ICD assets. But the demand is mostly for stable coins, and mainly because people it's much easier for people to borrow stable coins because it's fiat, kind of fiat, and it allows them to take positions on BTC and ETH. So the lending rate is always higher on stable coins than on compared to BTC and ETH. So yeah, we'll be um, this lending protocol that hopefully will come up soon will have a Singapore dollar backed stable coin lending and post possibly others. One thing that I'd like to highlight as well is you know when we're launching stable coins, so one of we we, we decided to work with a partner in Singapore which is called Xfers. And we were at a dilemma back then on whether to go with a USD-backed stablecoin or not. And we decided to go with a Singapore dollar-backed stablecoin because we wanted to see what happens and what you can achieve when you have a regional stablecoin. Uh, interestingly, uh, Singapore dollar-backed stablecoin through XRG that we launched is now the third largest stablecoin after USD and Euros. By the way, Singapore is a very small country yeah. uh, you know, compared to, compared to uh, many countries like, like you know, in Europe, obviously, and elsewhere. But it was very interesting because it felt to me that it means that there's a community that wants to use some of these stable coins that are denominated local currencies. And people are just not building things for those, those local and regional communities. And so that's another angle, which is if you're building a DeFi product, see if there's something interesting that you can build for a certain type of communities and not just for, well, here's a DeFi product only for developers. And that's, that's, again, that's something that our community and we focus on very heavily. Now, in, in the lending, you guys are currently working with Chainlink? Yeah, so Chainlink is um, something that we have. So we did Chainlink did some integrations back then uh, in the early days, and now we are taking a step further from our side to provide a, a full end-to-end uh, you know, Oracle service for people to use. This will, for example, could be a part of the lending product that will come in. So one of the things that I've been asking is, you know, what are the risks and to these price feeds, especially in all these all these lending protocols where you might have assets there or leverage, and you know, what was the risk of you know, that price, you know, data? There's a risk, obviously. There's a risk. There's many, many, in many uh, of these applications, depending on how these you know, price oracles are used, in many applications, a lot of the logic depends on the data that comes in. And if, they, if that, the data that comes in is not um, one sanitized correctly, uh, you know, is not coming from different sources, 
and or it's you know tampered in some way you can have you know you, you know your your total asset that's in the contract can can be at a huge risk so there's a huge risk if you if if something goes wrong with some of these uh, oracle systems out there but yeah i mean people are building systems that would be resistant but yeah in generally speaking if you have this this you know smart contracts in general have created a system where the technological risk is unimaginable one because um you have experiments happening every other day people are building applications over a week and are launching that into the wild for people to use with small disclaimers here you know there are some where says that oh you know you should not use it if you're not if if you're not you know ready to risk your assets but the second thing is sometimes people don't understand the risk because it's so new that it's very difficult to understand the risk that you're getting into and number 3 is you know it's not just about in many systems you know you know who is who can be your in a centralized system for example right you know who can be the adversary you know who can be the attacker right in this system, in, an, in an open blockchain kind of system your miner can be malicious your other user can be malicious your competition can be malicious you know your competitor can be malicious your you know your neighbor neighboring contract can be malicious so if you are you have a contract and that contract may be interacting with another contract and if that friendly contract is malicious your entire system becomes malicious and that's very very challenging because it's very hard to sort of scope the 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 risk sort of uh, factors and, and and the areas from where the risk come from so my short answer is yes there's a lot of risk from using some of these oracles and one not just oracles but using some of the existing contracts because now because of this composability you are composing one contra- contract with the other and the risk is basically doubling every single time you're composing with another contract so what is your thought i guess you know if people aren't taking a lot of risk what is your take on uh you know some of the insurance that's being provided in the space on chain and this is this is also interesting because um this insurance sector in the in the blockchain space is very different uh, or it takes very it shows very different types of risk compared to like the traditional insurance right um and so um it is important in some way to be able to build the right insurance product that covers uh, the right risks and by the way all the insurance products out there in the market today especially on blockchains they don't cover all the risks by mm-hmm. the way they are very careful of what the risk they, what are the they cover um so yeah i think i think it's it's an emerging and good area to lo- look on because i think the more um projects come on board around defi nfts uh, especially if you're dealing with a 100 million dollar nft you need to be careful of how that get handled and when they get tokenized you are basically not you're no longer nft pure, pure per se you're now becoming fungible token as well so i do feel that there's a market and demand and will be demand for for some of these products in the same way you you insure your your house you insure your car you insure your products i think at some point you will insure your holdings in some way so the assets that you hold so i do that, feel that there is this uh, this new risk definitely requires a new type of insurance and we have seen that some of the products out there now is that something that we'll see uh through uh, the lending on uh, zelka uh so I, i would say that we are not quite there yet so i would say that maybe uh, we need a couple of more i would say that uh, insurance comes when there are attacks so there's <laughs> probably hacks out there on the zelka chain right now but until now but yes um we are trying to scope some of the risks and uh, anyone who wants to build an insurance product needs to understand the risk if there's no risk then there's no point right you know imagine you build a house which is fireproof and everything proof then what's the point of for let's say even earthquake proof and everything then what's the point so we need to the insurance needs to understand the risk first uh, and once they see the risk then i think they will be uh, then they will be able to build some of those products around that i mean I, you know also for the insurance covering let's say the oracles and their price feeds i mean do you think that there needs to be redundant pricing feeds or how many or you know what what do you kind of consider safe yourself or what do you look for 
Look, if you look at some of the existing, like even Chainlink, right? Um, the mechanism that they take to be able to give you a price is very simplistic, right? It, they basically take you know data from different sources and have a basically a simple aggregator mechanism to to give you a final price fee, right? And that aggregator could be as simple as let's say take uh, take two third of whatever people say or take the mean or something what they say and then you know give that as the, as a result. Now you kind of want to hint at that, right, at that, right? Which is insurers need to ensure also that if you are if you're using a product, let's say if you have a lending product, if you're using a chain link like Oracle or some other Oracle, that Oracle needs to take the right data sources in mind. If they are using you know faulty sources, then would the insurer want to insure that product? Maybe not. I don't think it's clear yet right now on 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 how those products are actually assessing that. Right now, it's kind of uh, you know they are they are learning on their own on what sort of ways they have to structure it. Sometimes they could say, okay, let's do a committee vote on whether we should risk, you know, whether we should ensure it or not. But then these are these could be manipulated in some way. If you don't set your rules before the game starts, you can it's you know it becomes a wild west. So yeah. um, so yeah, I I think that it's not super clear right now, but I think it will become clear over time how some of these uh, insurance products structure their requirements on on products when they insure them. You think people users will will trust in I guess uh, you know DAOs or whatever that vote. To pay out policies versus, uh, you know, where it's only paid out via a contract. So, um, you know, we have seen how DAO kind of DAO sort of governance kind of played in case of Ethereum, right? Where even even a big chunk of committee decided that it was a bad idea, and yet it went through it, and people, you know, created Ethereum Classic and Ethereum. I do think that there is a role for governance to play into this, because many of the products that are out there today still have users involvement into this right people put capital and that capital gets used to ensure some of the products uh, but also if you also look about look at it right uh, you'd see that uh, the people actually vote in some of the systems are actually quite few uh, you know you you could see recent uni governs around this um, d5 education fund they call it <laughs> advocacy fund they call it um, was a bittersweet kind of moment uh, but it's it's but in pure numbers you'd see that probably 100 people uh, vote in some of the voting proposals that go out, which means that it it all it will all boil down to some hundred uh, big proponents and users of the systems who decide whether certain things are right or wrong. I don't think we are quite there yet. If, if you ask my personal opinion, I don't think we are quite there yet to say the community, even if the Ethereum community, is quite there yet to decide on big, you know, decisions because people who are involved in some of those decisions are are handful. Uh, the entire community doesn't decide on you know. You could say that maybe if the community, the broader community feels that okay, this is something that will impact my my holdings, then I am going to go and vote for it. But they may not even understand how to go and vote. People, people, half of the community on Ethereum, half of the people who, who hold Ether don't even know what a snapshot is. They don't, they don't understand how to go on snapshot and go and vote. They don't understand that you don't have to pay Ether or pay Zills to be able to vote on snapshot. How do you expect these people to go and vote? So that that I do feel that this we are not quite there yet in in if where you could say that okay. Well, no, I don't know. Ten thousand people will go and vote on a DAO-like system and say, "Look, let's let's decide on whether this hack should be considered a hack, and a premium, you know, insurance should be paid out, or whether a contract should decide on its own." I don't think the community play is ready to decide on those things. So maybe the contract will be a better option for now. Yeah, I, I kind of agree there. Uh, so let's. I guess we were kind of on some things that Zillica is working on. We hit the lending, sell swap. Uh, what, what other things are you guys doing? Anything in the NFT market? Yeah, so we uh, we had launched an NFT marketplace for uh, sports NFTs. So these are you know European football uh, NFTs uh, where we had commissioned uh, ten football players and we had NF you know we shot videos of them uh, and then we 
put that on this marketplace where people could buy and trade those assets. Now we are also looking on building on a more generic open marketplace uh, for people to put their NFTs. There is this idea of creating NFT sort of index kind of fund as well, where we would be able to bring NFT assets from Ethereum, from other chains as well, and then create a cross-chain sort of NFT index fund. And then we are also looking into fractionalization as well. But yeah, we need to be able to bring some interesting assets into the hands of users and collectors and and those sort of people. And once we have that, uh, then we'll be able to build uh, NFT fractionalization sort of product as well for people to to use. Then, for example, you have what will end up happening is let's you buy uh, someone buys $100 million worth of NFT or a million dollar worth of NFT. You tokenize that into smaller pieces and then you have fungible tokens representing that. And if I'm a user and if I don't understand the value of NFTs, but I understand the value of fungible tokens, I could actually buy fungible tokens to buying the NFT itself. So that gives an exposure to users who are still new to NFTs, but they will that, that kind of gives them a learning curve into getting into NFTs. So some of the products are being built, some by, by, by us, and obviously more by the community around these NFTs. So yeah, but, you know, watch the space for the next six to eight months, and you will see some surprises coming in as well. Is there, any, is there a main reason you guys uh, chose that football, correct, as your area? Well, we obviously were looking into the European market. Um, and of course, you know, football is the one is the one game and one sport that entire Europe sort of, uh, and of course the rest of the world as well, sort of looks up to. And therefore uh, the idea was, and then, you know, Europe, Europe has a huge following, right? So if you get some of these uh, players uh, hooked up into football then uh, and users for, into football, then it'd be very interesting. So I would say it's mostly about the users that are involved in that space and the following that football has. And how do you guys vote on, you know, what to implement and choose to put in the roadmap and then, how do you guys also like choose products that are going to maybe be different or something different than the other blockchains to also attract more users that might not be so competitive? Right. So um, to answer your first question on governance, so we have a governance token called JZO, uh, which you earn for free by staking. So when you stake your ZILs and you earn ZIL rewards, you also earn JZO. So for every thousand ZIL that you earn, you get uh, one JZO given to you. And so uh, we use diesel for all sorts of governance uh, purposes. So uh, very, I think a couple of months ago, someone just from the committee felt that our fees were quite low and they wanted to increase the, the base fee, <laughs> base fees, base fees in Zilliqa. So uh, the committee member proposed, uh, came out of a proposal of increasing the base fee for Zill transfers. And that proposal voted by the committee and then uh, we got that sorted out. Uh, right now there's a chatter in the committee around uh, sort of loading the unbonding period. So unbonding period is the time uh, it takes you to sort of say that, okay, I want to unstake. And so the, the time, so when you, when you lodge your request on, okay, I want to unstake my, my assets from this staking contract. And then normally it's logged for a week or two. And then you, after a week, you're able to unstake. So that's the unbonding period. So in Zillic, unbonding period is for two weeks. Um, and there's a chart in the committee around how to and lower this unbonding period to seven days or even lower. And in order to decide on this, uh, GZL governance will come into play. So there will be a proposal out there and you could go and decide whether you want to increase it, decrease it, and if you want to decrease it by how much. So that's something that GZL governance comes, comes into play. The second point about uh, doing something different. One is I obviously, I've, you know, I've seen, for example, uh, something around gaming where people say, oh, look, let's build, let's build applications which are gaming applications, but are built on blockchains, are backed by blockchains. What I've seen is that in Zilliqa some someone in the, in the committee is building tools that integrate with existing games. So like Minecraft and those sort of things. So uh, what you can do is you can play Minecraft. Um, you, can, you can put some Zills as your collateral. And if you are two players playing against each other, and if you, if you are able to kill or do something, and if you win the match, then you take everyone's collateral and you, it becomes your money in some way. So there are people building sort of tools and plugins for existing games as well. 
obviously something that I find uh, different compared to the traditional way of building pure blockchain games uh, backed by you know contracts. Uh, and these games are not purely backed by contracts. So these are games, traditional games, but with NFT element or you know, marketplace element or you know DeFi element introduced into it as a, as a, as a complement, not a, as a as a centerpiece. Then I, I really believe that no matter what people say, but user experience matters. Uh, you know, we have seen that in many different cases and sectors where you build the same product, but with a better user experience than that sells. So I do feel that, uh, and I do encourage many developers to think twice before they build the application. It's not just about forking. Even when you fork, uh, think about a different user experience. So that's, that's I would say that, you know, the, the best part is obviously building something interesting, something new that people would use and something that an average user would, use, would, would, you know, would use, not generally speaking, not a developer, but I want an average user who holds Ether, who holds Zills, who holds Bitcoin. Uh, I want to build products that those people can use. And number two is uh, build products that have the right user experience, not a developer experience. Okay. And you mentioned uh, GZL and staking. What uh, currently, you know, what are the staking rewards and how are those, reward, how are those rewards generated by the blockchain? So um, the staking rewards are around 13%, if I'm not wrong, uh, it fluctuates depending on how, how how much stake is there. It's something around 12% to around 14% uh, per annum. And then um, you also get GZL, uh, as you know for free. If you add it together, then I think it'd be close to about 20% um, uh, from staking. You also have a uh, Zill swap. So this, this returns come from mining rewards. So when a block gets mined, 60% uh, of the block reward actually goes to the miners. These miners maintain the system and the network. And then 40% goes to the stakers and so the reward basically comes from comes from mining. One thing interesting about Zelica, which is something now Ethereum has implemented as well, which is around this um, fee burning, which is when you send transaction on Zelica, whatever fee you put in that transaction doesn't go to the miners. They get taken out of circulation. So in a way, it reduces the supply. So it helps all the token holders. So that's kind of where the value gets captured as well. So obviously, when, once you put your Zills to work in different DeFi products, Zill gets locked. So for example, when you put your Zill into staking, Zill gets logged, it, it creates scarcity. When you put your Zills into Zill swap, it creates, it creates scarcity in the market. Number two, when you send transaction to, to the network, or any sort of any transaction on the network, whatever the fee is in there that in that transaction gets taken out of circulation. So, it, another, so that's another level of sort of scarcity that, that comes in with that. So that's the kind of sort of two ways in which in which uh, you could you could create uh, you have utility and value capture for Zills. So for DeFi products, from DeFi products and from regular transactions. And how does the you know operations of Zilliqa, you know, and the blockchain maintain itself or bring in revenue? Yeah, so we, um, you know, we had done we had done a TGE uh, back in 2017-18, uh, through which we raised around 20 million dollars, and so we 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 are prudent about how to handle that fund. Um, so we are using that fund uh, for 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 the you know for for Zilliqa and for our operations. We have also made uh, you know several investments in the Zilliqa community and different infrastructure that people are building. Uh, through which, for example, we are investing in companies like Unstoppable Domains, uh, in companies like uh, Switchio, which is which has built uh, a decentralized exchange for us. Unstoppable Domain is a domain name system very similar to ENS. Uh, we are also investing in some other companies um, like X Academy, which is which is which is building a sort of a fan token infrastructure for YouTubers. Um, so that that's also a source of revenue for us. Uh, there are other different mechanisms in which we can we generate revenue. Um, so yeah, we are for this year we have been generally self-sufficient uh, for you know for operation expenses. And how does the, I guess, how do you guys use the treasury or how do you guys uh, attract more developers into your ecosystem? So we have a program that, um, that's called Zillhive, uh, which was initially, uh, when we started Zillica in 2017, it was a $5 million fund. And that fund is basically used to give grants to projects, sometimes used to projects that, one, build tooling. 
So it's not just about bringing dApps, but it's also about building the right tools that encourages developers to make developer experience much easier um, and streamlined. So we have used that to build, uh, to invest and, and, and you know, fund different projects out there, uh, whether it be explorers, wallets, or some of the dApps, for example, um, you know, come, you know, the fund, that funding came from that. Uh, we have again extended that to by another 5 million. We have announced a $10 million fund as well, which is around Creator Fund. That's a fund that is especially around NFTs. So the idea is to bring more artists. So we have to basically build um, a community around that NFT. So one artist who build, create those NFTs, and then buyers who are interested in buying those NFTs. You know, it's, it's not just about- It's a marketplace. Creator. It's like a marketplace, right? Exactly. exactly. So we need, we need both sides to be, to be there, right? So, uh, so this is, these are the ways in which we use our funding to give grants and encourage people to develop. What other, I guess, you know, so you're basically saying also through the investments that the foundation makes that that's how it was sustained operations ongoing. Yeah. So for example, when we invest in some of the projects, of course, uh, we get returns from those projects. We sometimes also participate in some of you know, existing DeFi products to sus- support them. Uh, for example, let's say if you have ZillSwap, sometimes we do support ZillSwap in terms of LP. So there are some rewards that come from LP as well. And, and, then, um, and then we have the treasury that we use for official expenses. So treasury... Uh, getting into some of the DeFi applications and investments are basically our three. And one more, which is our, so there are some projects which come on board and they, they have the idea, but they don't have the right expertise, technical expertise, for example, to execute those ideas. So what we also offer them is this technical support that they provide. So you could call it consultancy of some sort, so tech consultancy of some sort, and we get paid for, for that as well through our partners. So these are a few avenues through which uh, we generate revenue. So Zilliqa, even though some projects out there claim that, oh, we are a protocol, we're not a business. Uh, but I do feel that uh, Zelika, we treat, treat it as a business where the idea is, yes, we are building a protocol. Uh, that's not going anywhere. But we are a business because uh, in order to build that protocol, we need money. Yeah. <laughs> the team behind it that needs to eat, that needs to, <laughs> that needs, uh, that needs uh, you know, salaries. So we need to be able to create, treat Zelika as a business that develops products and the protocol as well. Yeah, I think that's uh, sometimes not always in the conversation in the last few years. You know what I mean? Yeah, look, there have been projects that have been hugely successful in uh, in managing their treasury well. And there have been projects who have been not so successful in managing the treasury and they have been wiped out simply because they didn't have a good business model on, on how to, one, deal with the treasury and number two, how to generate money for their companies, uh, you know, for, their, for, their, for the treasury. So uh, we do both ways. One is we obviously manage our treasury in the right way. And number two is we create avenues uh, for, for more money to flow in. So how many, I guess, developers and team members do you guys currently have? And is that distributed across the whole globe? Yeah. So um, again, I think we're a typical blockchain company, which, which is sort of distributed in some way. So we have our headquarters in Singapore, um, where we have most of the team members there, but we have people sitting in Denmark, in, in, in Russia, in, in China, in India, um, in Netherlands. So we have places, you know, people all over the world. I think it's, it's most companies work in that way, at least in the blockchain space. So yeah, I mean, uh, we have a total of around 45 people now in the team. Uh, again, spread out everywhere across the world. So do you guys have- we are expanding, expanding every day. So uh, to all those who are listening uh, and watching this, uh, <laughs> if you are interested in Zilliqa, uh, we are looking for people from tech, business to marketing. If you think that you'd be a good fit and want to get involved in the blockchain space, uh, you know, hit us an email and we'd be happy to interview. So is the Zilliqa, I guess, uh, serve all regions currently, or is there any you know regulatory restrictions that are out there? Well, um, generally speaking, as you know, U.S. is a very uh, difficult market to go in. And, you know, we have seen some of the drama in the last uh, <laughs> few days around the infrastructure bill. Um, so far, we have been you know in, in Singapore in that region. Um, even though we have we had uh, you know teams all over the globe, it was it was our focus was to be able to establish ourselves in that region first. 
now we are obviously expanding in different countries. So uh, you know, we are getting projects. Not expanding. It's not just about putting team members all over the world, but it's also about getting the right outcome from that. For example, one is getting Zill exposed to some of the countries. For example, getting Zill in the hands of people in the US. For example, getting Zill in the hands of people in Europe. For example. So it could be, for example, through exchange listing. It could be through outreach or through influences. It could be through participation to different policy making, for example. And then it could also be, for example, bringing projects that are from those countries. So, for example, we are getting a lot of, for example, when when we launched a stable coin, that stable coin basically came from Singapore. Uh, now we are getting projects uh, that are being built from Europe and and the US. So we are people building a fantasy sort of uh, product around blockchains uh, that's coming from Canada. Uh, we have I talked about Xcademy, which is a product around um, fan token for YouTubers that's coming from from the UK. So this is the way in which sort of we're expanding. You know, one getting more exchanges to get to less deals, to getting you know, involved in the policy making and decisions, and number number three is you know getting projects to from those countries to get on get to build on Zilliqa. And what is your take on? I mean, as you're trying to expand regions, I know some of the bigger population places like India kind of keeps going back and forth on crypto, uh, banning crypto. You know, what is your thoughts there? Look, India is a huge country. Uh, you know, I come from India. Uh, I've, I've, I've uh, been there for 20 years of my life. It's a huge country. It has a huge development base. Um, and if you can capture even 1% of that, uh, it's going to be enormous. <laughs> uh, and the second part is that it's also a huge market. So, um, you know, it's also about, you know, building. But again, it's, it's, it's not something that um, it's one of those countries where you have to build the right products. You can't just come and say, okay, here's a product that has been successful in, in, in Silicon Valley. Let's push that out in India. It's not going to work that way. So you need to be tactical about what you build and what you push there. In terms of regulations, of course, it's a little bit of uncertainty going on there, like many countries, right? It's, it's not clear uh, you know, which way the pendulum is going to swing. But I'm sure that uh, you know, blockchains and Bitcoin are not going anywhere. Uh, and, and the policymakers know that for sure. And now they're just trying to find the right way in which it could work. One for them, of course, and then for the rest of the innovation that's happening in the space. So I do feel that no matter what happens or what we, we may have seen the last months or so, um, you know, governments in some of these countries are going to find a way, or will have to find a way in which uh, they could work together with uh, you know, DeFi people and anonymous people who want to keep developing and shadow code. <laughs> <laughs> that, will be, that will be interesting to see how that plays out, right? Um, yeah. So I guess, you know, as we're getting closer, is, uh, have you guys worked with, you know, any notable VCs that have had a great influence on implementation of Zillica? Well, we have, uh, you know, Zillica, when we started, we had investments on policy and capital. Uh, we had investments in MBG capital. We had investments in, from Kinetic Capital, uh, from NGC Capital, uh, New Global Capital. So we had investments from one of you know, some of the major ones who were back then. Now there are new ones who have pop, you know, come up, but uh, some of the major ones that invest in Zelica that helps uh, that helped us in many different ways, you know, getting exposure uh, in, the, in the right markets, um, getting other investors, for example. So um, yeah, I mean, and we are always in touch with some of these um, you know, investors uh, uh, and VCs who have been in the space to get involved and be part of their, so whatever they do with the portfolio, you know, which, whether it be HR, for example, whether it be hiring, whether it be getting connected with the right people. So these, these VCs actually help, help you with that. Because, you know, now it's not just about investors because now everyone is an investor, right? So in this space, when everyone is an investor, you want to find the right investors who help you with what you're looking for. And some of the investors that we had in the past, they have been very helpful and, and kind, kind with us uh, in, in some of those areas. M money is abundant these days, almost to the extent that the resources and implementation is what's going to get you further, right? Indeed. I mean, today, you know, we have, been, we have seen that in our community as well. Uh, there was a token launch um, 
of a couple of months ago where the you know the project owner wanted to raise i think half a million dollars and he ended up he ended up getting a commitment of around over 4 million dollars within a matter of hours you could see that there's a there's a demand you could see that if you build certain products that are that people like there's abundant money in the market people are willing to give you the right support but yeah it's all it's not just about money it's about the support that you get from those people is something that's more important you think a relationship between a project's users will call it uh and somehow being able to piggyback their resources could almost bring more value than the vcs in the future or do you think they're both still having their own role i do think that they do have their own role in some way one is because um of course there are some investors uh, who are retail they are very smart but they are retail for some reason they don't pop out right um, because there are 20000 people or, or 100000 people in the community it's very difficult for you to unless they are very vocal about things you won't it would be very hard for you to identify and it took me uh, quite a while to to know that this person is actually a huge investor in zelica and he was he was very smart but it took me a while to identify that person because they were among you know 100000 people right it's very difficult while for vcs you could you could see that very quickly right when you talk to them you know that whether they're going to help you out or they are just there because they want an allocation in your in your round you could identify that very quickly um because simply because you know there are 10 15 investors that you talk to right 10 15 vcs that you talk to and and because they come from that they have that branding and baggage with them uh, you know that they're going to help you out uh, you could talk to other partner you know parties who are, who got investment from those vcs you know but in the end it's not all about vcs because vcs are also bidding on users right because vcs are not saying yeah. okay i'm going to give you money and because of my money everything is going to be Uh, rosy right it's it's not about that vcs also are expecting that you will attract users on your platform and if if they see that you are you you're not having you're not attracting enough users then of course they will they'll start questioning you right so it's it's both are important i would say but at the right time so you need initial vcs to see the vision that you are which might be a bit difficult for a retail guy to see vcs do see that because they they evaluate different projects on a daily basis so they know and they see where the space is going so it's it's much easier for you to sell something to a vc than to sell to a retail I mean, what I mean by not a, a smart retail, I mean it's, it's a bit difficult. But then once you have VC on board, you need your your retail guys to be able to come on board, not just from investment angle, but from users angle. You need to convert those users into uh, convert those those retail guys into your users, and that's what VCs are looking for, really. And if you can't do that, then you know VCs won't be trusting you in the next round. So you, you know, when it comes to the users, and that's kind of you know, we'll wrap up. You know, our last question is, uh, you know, you know, what is Zilka working on that will ultimately help? increase the utility of the zilka token and adoption and garner more users over the next few years look there are a few things that we're doing number one is we do feel that there are a lot of users outside of zilka who are not using blockchains at all uh, who are holding assets but not using blockchains at all so find a way to bring those users over to zilka for example we could do uh, that's kind of why we are building bridges so if you build a bridge then if you have a user who is holding usdt on binance you would be able to take that you know usdt bring them bring that over to zilka if, if there's a user who holds bdc doing nothing with it you could bring that bdc over to zilka and put that on zilswap and have uh, you know certain interest uh, from that so one is to bring you know bring users outside of zilka over, over to zilka through through some of the bridges number is to number two is to build products that are not just for a select few but for general user base so we need to build products uh, you know i mentioned about this gaming where you there are gamers out there who use you know minecraft and use who play uh, you know counter strike and what not if we could build bring zilica to that game in some way can we would be able to convert some of those users in, in zilica in some way so that's that's the other idea which is bring, build products that drives brings users uh, in some way number 3 is 
build a better user experience. And I think even if you, and that's, that applies to even a, a fork app, for example. So you take an app, make it better. If you can take an app from, from Ethereum or Binance Smart Chain or whatnot, if you can make that better so that an average user can use without any lingo, without having forcing him to watch a two hour video through your favorite influencer, then you can you, you have a big win. And number four is general education. I do feel that um, you know we need to we need to make it tune it down. We need to make sure that people generally we have to make it easier for people to 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 to, to get on board with some of these apps. I do feel that Ethereum at this point has become a little bit elitist to some extent. It's getting more and more difficult for an average user to go on board and, and use some of the Ethereum apps. So if you can tone it down a little bit for these average users, I think it's going to be a huge game. So I would say that these are three or four ways in which we are targeting to bring more users to, to Zilliqa and in blockchain in general. Do you think some of the incentives uh, around the liquidity mining, airdrops, et cetera, to bring users on board is something that is working? Or do you think people are ultimately just kind of collecting it and going on to the next thing? I would say that airdrops don't work, uh, but our regular incentives work. Um, you know, airdrops, in the, in, you know, if you look at many of the airdrops that have happened in the past, people... Uh, those who were serious about that product, they took that airdrop and you know held it for a while. Yep. But most people, they took that airdrop maybe because I used Uniswap once. I got that uh, you know unique airdrop and then I, I I sold it and then well I'm done with it. So there are those people as well. So airdrops generally don't work unless you tie that airdrop you know in a very careful manner to engage people to continue using that that you know product. So I would say that incentive that is that is continues to give you based on your activity does help. And we have seen that, you know, uh, even on ZillSwap, you know, when we had launched ZillSwap, there was no incentive at all. And number of people who were providing liquidity on ZillSwap was probably 10, 15. The moment we launched incentives, uh, suddenly that number grew from 10 to 2,000 very quickly. And that has still stayed. It's not that it has dropped because that as long as the incentive was there, people has, have continued to uh, put uh, Zills uh, and some of the other assets on ZillSwap and on that door. So incentives work. But again, people... If you're thinking that, okay, people are only using my product for incentive, that's wrong. People are using many products at the same time <laughs> to harvest uh, and you know, uh, do farming. That's, that's true. But yeah, the people are trying, basically trying to maximize uh, whatever incentives they can, they can get. It's true that you have to pay that incentive in the right way. Airdrops, um, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of airdrops. They mostly, in most cases, they don't work. So any, I guess, you know, do you want to add on to any incentive that we might not be seeing in the marketplace that might to be, uh, someone should be willing to maybe implement to try in the future? Well, uh, I have, I, if you have seen um, Uma's uh, incentive mechanism, I really like that mechanism, Uma protocol, UMA. What they're doing is they are incentivizing people, they come to not just to participate in some of the products that are built, but actually to do a lot of other things. For example, they are incentivizing. So basically, when you're a company, you set KPIs for your team, right? When you reach those KPIs, you give them bonus, you give them, you give them some incentive. What they're doing is, they are proposing incentives, you know, KPI-based incentive for the team, for the community as well. So they're saying that, look, if, if we reach a million dollar or let's say a billion dollar TVL, you would unlock certain incentives for community members. So for example, let's say, if I recall correctly, basically the idea was to give an option to the community to buy the underlying token at a cheaper price than the market price if, uh, you know, the UMA's TVL grew to a billion dollars, for example. So we would see more of those incentives, which aligns the entire community towards achieving certain targets. They also said, I think some incentives are on HR. So they're basically saying that, look, if you are able to sort of suggest us the right team members to hire, if those team members get hired eventually uh, by us, then you would be able to get a certain incentive uh, you know, from us. So we would, I, would, I would say that 
new creative incentive mechanisms will pop up that engages the broader community around uh, you know not just use the product or not just you know put your assets on the product but for the broader you know you know marketing in some way so that's that's something that i think uh, would would come up and i am looking forward to implementing some of those ideas ourselves too well, i'm sure everyone would like to see them right <laughs> I, I appreciate your time. I mean, is there any other things you would like to, you know, uh, leave us off with too, uh, in regards to Zillica that we haven't yeah, covered? Yeah, so we have. Yeah, so we have. Uh, you know, this Zillica Ethereum bridge coming up. Uh, hopefully, very soon. Uh, we are planning uh, a mainnet upgrade very soon that will have this bridge, of, you know, features up. And once that bridge is up, it will enable the contract that will allow people to swap assets and you know from Ethereum to Zillica and so on. There will be incentives for that uh, around three assets mainly: BTC, ETH, and USDT. So if you bring those assets from Ethereum. Do Zilliqa and put that on Zillswap. You'll be able to earn incentives. And those incentives will be in Zills to start with. If I'm not, if I my numbers are right, uh, the incentives will be around fifty percent APY um, for a three-month period. Um, so um, three months, I'm probably slightly shorter, but yeah, that's the idea. So it's a, it's a short-term uh, incentive. Uh, come and come and get get involved once that goes live. And then if you if you want to uh, get involved with the Zilliqa community in general, follow us on Twitter or join our Telegram group uh, where most of the team members are active and uh, would be happy to answer any questions that you may have. Well, Amrit, I appreciate you taking your time out today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being here.